0: I was asked in a podcast interview recently what superhero I most admired. I said Superman. The host pointed out that I likely aspired to what Superman stands for. Truth, justice, and the American way. Indeed I do, which is why it was hard to rewatch Batman vs. Superman. I mean, on the one hand, it was great to see him really struggle with what it means to have such awesome power and the responsibility that comes with it. But it's hard to see the human side of those we look up to. We don't want to be thinking about how they have to deal with the same daily life struggles that we all deal with, because then maybe it means we also have the potential to be someone others look up to, because we want to believe they just have it easier than we do, and that's why they're so much further ahead than us, because just as I'm reconciling that Superman is fallible and struggles to do the right thing, he sacrifices himself to save everyone else and then the movie ends. What? Superman dies and the movie ends? That, my friends, is a major open loop. According to Copyblogger, open loops keep readers itching to find out how they work out in the end, a need-to-know phenomenon called the Zygernik effect by psychologists. Open loops are much more compelling than closed ones. Your challenge for this week, how can you incorporate open loops into your writing? I try to use one in my subject line each week. If you write a blog very frequently, you could close the loop in the next post. To entice someone to read your follow-up email, you can have an open loop at the top of your message and close it at the bottom. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest is a globally recognized expert on executive presence and communicative leadership. During her first career as an award-winning broadcast journalist, she interviewed top influencers and developed a keen interest in discovering the qualities of successful leaders. She channeled that energy to bring together a team that today is at the forefront of innovation in executive and leadership development. Her firm is distinguished for its groundbreaking research and model of executive presence which global organizations use to help leaders make a bigger impact. She's the author of several books, including her best-selling business book, Speak Like a CEO, Secrets for Commanding Attention and Getting Results. She's the past president of the New England chapter of the National Speakers Association and a certified speaking professional, a professional designation held by fewer than 12% of speakers worldwide. Please join me in welcoming Suzanne Bates.
1: Hi, Robbie. Good to see
0: you. I'm so glad you're here with us. Thank you for joining me, Suzanne. So I I want to thank you for joining me. You're actually nearby. I live in Boston. You're in Wellesley. Um, So I'm glad we get to also cross paths in person. Uh, So this is a show about leadership and building great networks. So tell me, what does leadership mean to you? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: I think leadership is rallying people to achieve a vision. And my first experiences in leadership were probably like many people when I was very young, as a child, when I was uh, leading a class effort or uh, the first chair in the orchestra or the head cheerleader. I didn't know that that was leadership at the time, and I'm sure I made lots of mistakes. But I guess I was always uh, drawn to rallying people around a vision, Mm you know, rallying people to achieve something. That really got me excited.
0: Do you think that started even, even before all that, like on the playground, were you organizing kids to do certain activities? Were you, were you that kid?
1: I don't know if I was an organizer, but I think uh, in retrospect that what I noticed was that people often did look to me. Now, that doesn't mean you're a good leader, but I felt that people often looked to me uh, You know, when we were trying to pull something together or make something happen. So yeah. Well, for me, it was just joyful. I just enjoyed doing that. So I wouldn't say I'm so much an organizer, but I often uh, get excited about uh, something I can see that could happen if we mm-hmm. all got together and did it.
0: Were there role models early on that you saw having a certain leadership style and you were like, that, I, I see this being a positive thing and I want us to be more and more like that?
1: I always admired my father who was definitely a community leader. He was an attorney. I grew up in a small town in downstate Illinois. And he was the president of the school board and he was the head of the church board. And he had many uh, formal and informal positions in town. And, you know, I just always, I guess, admired his willingness to step up, especially in challenging times. So many of, many people my age would probably remember, you know, when times were tougher and uh, very often school uh, spending didn't get approved. There was a year when I was in school, my father was the head of the school committee when uh, we had to go to half days because the referendum wow. was approved. So I saw him uh, lead through challenging times and you know he was probably my greatest mentor.
0: Yeah, and he was no stranger to stepping into a, a formal role either. And so you it sounds like you rattled off a few formal roles that you took on. Um, And so whatever activity you're in, you're also somehow swept into the leadership position of that, like with the cheerleading or when playing an instrument, right? So did that continue as you went into college? Did you then at some point say, oh, this is a skill I have. I think I could do this. I should do it more often.
1: Well, in college, I, you know, it it was the same sort of thing. I was in a sorority and I was elected, uh, you know, to be the head of the sorority, Uh, but I didn't really... uh, I guess I didn't pursue it as part of my career. I uh, didn't have a career plan when I went to college. I was planning to go to law school. But along the way, I majored in journalism. And it was at a time when uh, women were just really getting into television news. So I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time and to be hired as the first woman in the first newsroom where I worked. And then actually, I was the first woman anchor in the next two newsrooms where i worked. So. It was a pioneering time for a lot of women in the business. However, journalism, uh, for the most part, although you work on a team and certainly there's, you know, leadership, uh, informal leadership and influence that you exert, I was never in a, in a formal management or leadership role in the first 20 years of my career. I was what, what you might call an individual contributor. I was a journalist, mm-hmm. a reporter, and an anchor.
0: Yeah, and, and taking on uh, such a, a difficult role being the first in that transition time when like you had to keep trying to make space for yourself. What was that like having to sort of like discover your own way into what had been previously not a place that women really occupied?
1: I, th- I think a lot of women who were in that era with me would say, we didn't really think about it that much. We really just wanted to pursue a career in journalism. And we saw some doors opening and we walked through them, which doesn't mean that there weren't some challenges along the way. It's just uh, you do what you you do what you have to do to uh, do what you want to do in your life. You know, yeah. you have to do in order to be, in order to have, <laughs> and go. So we, I think we all just did what we thought it would take
0: mm-hmm. to be successful. And what was the transition like going from 20 years in that field that you obviously loved and did so well at and excelled at, and then deciding to move forward? Was there something that was calling you to do the next thing?
1: I think uh, what I first noticed was an absence of the passion that I had felt about journalism when I'd started out. It was a phenomenal first career. I had so many amazing opportunities. Like you said, I probably interviewed, you know, 10,000 people, many of them, you know, presidents and, and uh, you know, political figures and celebrities. I joke sometimes that probably t- uh, half of them were criminals too, but <laughs> the point is I really had an amazing opportunity uh, to be exposed to the world, to live in different parts of the country, to travel and just to learn. Uh, but I was starting to lose uh, the passion for that. And, uh, you know, there may have been any reason for it, but I think when I am asked by others, you know, how do you make a decision about a career transition? I always say, you know, you just know and and if you put it off too long, um, you just get sadder and uh less effective, and you lose the passion in your life so you know I, so I felt it first as a, an absence of something, but then I knew that there was something I needed to run toward, and I wasn't afraid of starting my own business, perhaps because my dad again was entrepreneurial, he'd had his own firms, and on the side he'd started businesses and. So, it, I mean, it was scary, don't get me wrong. A lot of people describe it as um, jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you really don't know what you don't know. And that's a good thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what year uh, was this shift happening?
1: Well, I started, I started my company officially 18 years ago. So it was yeah. two, uh, the, right at the beginning of 2001 when I incorporated oh. my business. Of course, it was just me at the time. Yeah, and that was a really interesting and challenging time to start a business. Yeah, because as we all know, what happened on September 11th of 2001. So I was eight or nine months into my business when
0: 9/11 happened. And what was the first iteration of this new business? Was it similar yeah. to what you are doing today, or was it something sort of different?
1: Yeah, you know, it was a natural transition in a way. Although it certainly had to, what I did is I did media and presentation training starting out because, uh. of course, that would be something that I'd have credibility with, and I was able to uh, get doors opened in large companies because I was known in the Boston market. So that's really how I started out. And, um, you know, I think that's always a good pathway, you know, for those of you you in the audience who are entrepreneurs or thinking about entrepreneurship, it's to think about how do you make the connection between what you're doing today and what you could do that would be a value to others.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also want to underscore this piece you said earlier about leaving like, If you start to feel the absence and the joy of the job that you have, the career you've had, and even if you don't know exactly what's pulling you forward, start to figure that out. Because if you stay too long, you you lose you lose momentum, and then it becomes really hard to get out of that. Like I think you get a little stuck. Um, and, and I like the idea of sort of the pivot where you took a, an expertise you had and you had a lot of credibility in uh, like a media training, and you knew there was a need that people would would hire you for that. And then you sort of built from there. Um, I had the opportunity to see you present on your um, your model of uh, executive presence. And it's I, I was fascinated about, I actually saw you twice present now that I think about it. One was kind of the behind the scenes of how you got the model started. And one was your formal presentation. And they are both fascinating. And I, I just think that so many people shy away from doing research. I know so many people that are really just cobbling, me included, cobbling together other people's work and regurgitating it in various uh, forms. Um, but that's a pretty uh, unique pathway, even within entrepreneurship. And you you were actually sort of advocating that for us. You were like, just ask the questions. And, and it actually shifted the way I ask questions for my own podcast and made me realize like I, there's certain content I can just get by asking people. I'm, I'm interviewing people all the time. I hadn't thought of it as research, but why don't I ask the question? And that content's actually going to my second book. So thank you for sort of the inspiration of that. Well, you're very welcome. Well, where did you get that inspiration? Like how did you, not just inspiration, but like belief that you could do that since not many people are doing that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think first I do. I am curious, so and you are too, because you've been doing a successful podcast for so long. You're a great interviewer. Uh, I don't forget I had 20 years of journalism experience. So part of what makes you successful in journalism is curiosity, being mm-hmm. interested in learning about a lot of different things. Because you're, you know, you're an inch deep and a mile wide, <laughs> but you get to interview people all the time and you learn. So learning was uh, part of how I thought about how you move ahead and, and do better at anything. And uh, so it, and even when I started my business, I uh, I guess I did draw on my own resources for a while, but I did a lot of reading. And then when I wrote my first book, it was interview-based. was My first book was Speak Like a CEO. And I went out and interviewed CEOs I admired, which was a wonderful way, by the way, to meet people and network. And I certainly was able to uh, build relationships that helped me grow my business. Not only that, but through writing the book, as you know so well, I was able to land great speaking engagements and media that further propelled the business forward. So I think that the root of all of that is curiosity, being able to ask great questions, listening, and learning from that. And even when we developed the model that you talked about of executive presence, uh, my Part of my objective was really to understand what is executive presence because we were always asked about it in our, in our work, and I never had a good answer for it, frankly. In fact, I thought it was kind of a shallow topic until I you know, brought a few people together. I didn't do it myself, but other people who are experts, and we started a path of inquiry looking at research on, it's really about leadership. And th- so we ended up with uh, developing this model that's based in research. So it's, you know, I, I, it's a long answer, but everything to me goes back to believing you don't have all the answers, having a curious mind, wondering, and seeing what you can do to advance your own work through your curiosity.
0: I love that the, the actual topic that you now base an entire model on initially to you, you felt was kind of shallow. And I think that's a good thing to r- remind all of us that- we sometimes have to take another look. If someone keeps asking us about something um, and we're not giving enough sort of credibility to the idea, there's probably more there because people keep asking about it. Um, I've also had the experience of people asking about things that to me feel just ho-hum because it's secondhand for me. Um, And then you don't put enough intention in there either. So it's sort of like you had this sort of ability within you And now people are asking you to sort of share it. Like you have executive presence, but then you were like, I don't know. What is that? How do I explain that? And then you develop this whole model around it. So what do you find most rewarding then about the work you're doing today?
1: Well, gee, how many things can I count that are rewarding? I think, you know, the, probably the greatest uh, reward of all is being able to help people achieve their goals So part of doing that is being able, as you suggest, to unwind what you know or investigate it further so that you can uh, shed light on a topic. And so, you know, for example, when we started looking at executive presence, uh, what I wanted to understand is what it is, but why it should matter to leaders, because they were, you know, often in a conversation where it would be suggested they could work on their presence and they'd say, what does that mean? And I really believed it was more than the suit you wear and more than showing up, uh, you know, looking the part or even having a great presentation, although those things are good. They matter a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really believed it has to do with the whole person, but I needed uh, to pursue, again, a course of inquiry to understand that. So the model we developed is really robust. As you know, it includes the character of the person as well as the substance and the style. So now what we are able to do with somebody is unpack that for them, and say, well, here's and it's a 360 or a multi-rater, so we're able to, you know, hold up uh, the mirror and say, here's how people see your strengths. Here's where people see a gap, probably between your intentions and their perceptions, and those are behaviors you can change. But unless you've done the research and you can unpack it for somebody, you can't really work with them effectively. Mm-hmm. I had the same experience. I was asked to teach networking at one point, too, which I just <laughs> laughed about, Robbie, because <laughs> when I was in TV, I always tell people this when I was in TV, people called me to be on television, right? I didn't really have a network. But when I started my business, like you, I had to learn how to do it. So, you know, it all goes back to learning.
0: Mm-hmm. I also think that piece about being able to help people only go from their self perception to to like, from, well, I guess from where they actually are mm-hmm. to where they think they should be. Um, I've learned, you know, my background, I've done a lot of training before I was a speaker and that's always true. You can't take people beyond where they think they should be, but you can show them the sort of the pathway. Um, you had these, you handed out these uh, cards. It was, it was a very interesting thing to be in an audience, a pretty large audience, um, a few hundred people. And you know, your keynote and it was an interactive keynote, which is so rare, so so rare to have an activity that we all participated in. And then, of course, I brought the, these like it was little playing cards. I'm trying to think of how to describe them with all the different characters on them. And I brought it back to my wife and I talked her through Ooh, what wow. I had learned and showed her what I, I took a picture of my results. You know, so oh, it's yeah. just yeah. <laughs> um, so it's just like very interesting. Also, as a speaker, as a fellow speaker, to be thinking about. So sort of how you've been able to think really creatively about how to use your platforms, um, in a, in a different way, right? And, and to to sort of bring information to people, it's a, it's very creative. Okay. What's been challenging though for you? Like you you feel incredibly accomplished in whatever you've touched, but there must be some piece of this that was not your strength when you started. That maybe you you needed other people to jump on board. Like what was the piece that you're like? I'm not good at that, and I've gotta. I've got to build a team for this to really be successful.
1: Well, uh, as you know, mastery typically requires about 10,000 hours, okay. so we have to spend 10,000 hours at anything before we can even come close to you know, calling ourselves masters. And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, speaking is a good example because I think a lot of people struggle with that. You would think because I was on television for 20 years that that would come naturally to me, but for 20 years I talked into a camera lens. And so when I decided I was going to start a business, I knew I was going to have to learn to teach, you know, I guess you would have called it initially training. I don't really like to call it training anymore because I don't think people like to be trained, nor do I like to sit in a keynote for an hour and just sit there. So hence why I make it interactive. But anyway, I I knew I needed some experience, at least developing a curriculum and, and getting people to interact with it, which meant standing at the front of the room and doing that. So the first time I I, I ever taught anything was at an adult ed center. I volunteered to teach, I don't know if it was uh, executive presence maybe, but it was something related to that. And my heart was pounding out of my chest. I was walking into a room probably full of eight or 10 people. So I, I tell that story only because, you know, now like you, I'm invited to speak all over the world and to big audiences, but you have to start somewhere. And you have to, you know, I think you have to push yourself. You know, you have to challenge yourself uh, to stand on a bigger stage, as I often say. I mean, that there's a me- that's the metaphor. And then the yeah. real uh, aspect of speaking in front of large audiences, leaders have to learn to do it too. But in order to stand on a bigger stage, you got to go stand on bigger stages and learn how to do it.
0: <laughs> you just do it, right. There's the doing part of it. Mm-hmm. You just brought up um, the idea of the, the global aspect of your work. And I was curious about that because... Um, you know, I, I've been speaking on my topic for a decade, and I know that now when I'm, I, I you know, I I run masterminds, and I was just in a mastermind, um, and there was someone from like the UK, Australia, Canada, and the U.S., and it was so neat, you know. And I was like, I had no idea that I, my work would resonate, you know, with people all over the world. And in fact, I would say ten years ago, I would have thought it wouldn't, you know, that it felt so like localized, my specialty. How did you think about executive presence on a global scale? I mean, culturally, there must be such differences in how people rank what's important, you know, when they look at somebody and what they value. So was there a challenge in making the shift cross-culturally around the the Bates model?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. The model that we developed uh, is meant to be a multi-rater assessment, which means that it's uh, contextual for that leader in that organization. Mm-hmm. So we looked at literature from around the world in order to draw from all of that so that we could be as culturally agnostic as possible. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't differences between business cultures as well as uh, country cultures. But at this, and there are even differences within businesses. You know, the IT group is different from the sales group culture to some degree in almost every organization. So, the way we designed it was to be context specific. So, the person getting the feedback is getting it from his or her stakeholders, their peers, their direct reports, maybe their board, uh, maybe outside uh, influencers. But it should be relevant to them. And, you know, as far as it being global, I think. We now use the Bates XPI assessment and model in 17 countries. I think the reason for that is because executive presence is actually a hot topic globally. Communication is generally, and it's only becoming more so because we are living in a a global world where we've got to be able to communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. Global companies certainly are struggling with this. But even companies like yours and mine, smaller boutique companies, can be and almost have to be global. It's really yeah. exciting too, because as I know you've discovered with your mastermind groups, you learn so much, whether you're in a mastermind group or whether you're working with clients globally, it's so much fun. And, and you're right, that wouldn't have happened 10 or 15 years ago, but technology is making it possible.
0: Yeah. I think that might've been part of is the idea of how to bring people together uh, in, in a In a room, a virtual room, um, just yeah, ten years ago that wasn't even a thing, and now it's an everyday occurrence. Um, So I can see how once you've developed a model in one area, people hear about it and they want to bring it to their own company. It's not as much of a heavy lift to do that these days, but you also have to be ready to do it. And it sounds like you were like, "Yes, this is the topic. We're we're digging deep." Um, So I'm I'm wondering how you balance all of this, and balance is sort of always a misnomer here. It's maybe it's the word integration, but the hard part I know about being an entrepreneur, and uh, and I also have young kids, so I have that extra challenge. Is that you're never really off the clock, like, like you know, you don't have a you know clock in to work, clock out of work sort of way of uh, approaching it. So, well, how do you know when you're not on on the clock? Like, how, do you have a time or a practice or a, a routine that allows you to have some space for your brain to just kind of like wander? Because we've also lost that. We we no longer. Meander in our brains. You know, we, we get on our phones every down minute. Um, so, do you any have any thoughts about how you sort of make sure you're leaving ample time for things that don't feel connected to your, your work?
1: Well, yes. I mean, there's a lot of things I think that have worked for me that uh, may resonate for other people. When I first started my business, of course, that was a different time, but I did have a young daughter. And I was uh, the primary breadwinner in my family at the time. So there was no choice about whether I was going to make it successful. So I did put in a lot of hours and I often worked on the weekends, but it was a labor of love. So I didn't mind doing it. As time went on and I uh, built a a business with employees and partners and, and others, Um, It didn't, that didn't really change because you can always work more. (laughs) Yes. So you have to start to, you know, the work smart thing, I think is maybe a bit of a misnomer because you still have to put in time. You just have to put in time on the right things. So you have to constantly make choices as your business grows and as you mature and as your life changes about what you want to be doing. I think you also need to know how to manage your energy, how to do, uh, certain types of tasks when you're high energy. Mm. I think you have to learn how to take care of yourself, uh, be a corporate athlete, Uh, you know, and that doesn't mean you have to be ruthless about it, but eating well and getting exercise and, and enjoying your life because enjoying your life is a huge part of it. If you're fueling your life and living the best life you can, you have a lot more energy for work and you, uh, and it enables you to renew your passion. I don't think it's possible to constantly sustain the same level of passion all the time. I mean, there've been times in my life when I've needed to take a couple of weeks off. I just felt burned out, but I always have confidence. I can uh, regain it, I guess. And, you know, I think again, part of it is uh, continuing to reinvent yourself and feeling the passion again about doing new things is mm-hmm. very
0: important. Yeah. It and
1: feel like work.
0: It doesn't feel like work when you're, when you're in that moment, but uh, do you have any kind of morning routines or other sort of daily weekly habits that help you, Sort of regenerate and renew the way you're describing.
1: <laughs> well, yes, I, I guess I do. But you might laugh at my morning routine, which has changed over the years. I used to get up at five thirty and work out religiously. Uh, now my husband brings me coffee in bed, and I do social media first thing. In the
0: morning.
1: <laughs> but I find a, I find I found over time that uh, that wasn't my time to exercise anymore. So I plan my exercise, but it isn't necessarily first thing in the morning. And that might just be because I've gotten older. And, you know, again, I kind of know my my biorhythms and when my energy happens. So uh, I have a lot of mental energy in the morning for also for doing things like uh, uh, writing a book or writing an article or, you know, that sort of thing. So I will book time strangely, you know, sometimes in the morning when I know I'm highest energy for the things that I need to really focus like a laser on. And you cannot, I mean, look, I check email just like everybody else. I'm as drawn yeah. to it as anyone. Uh, but you really have to shut it all off if you're going to be productive and, and create something.
0: I actually feel most productive between 9 p.m. and 1130
1: p.m. Yeah, And it- I
0: think it's partly by rhythm and it's also because no one's emailing me. my kids are asleep my wife's at home there are no pings i mean i've turned all the pings off years ago but there's there's nothing to check you know all the inboxes go quiet for a few hours and that's when i tend to get that kind of work done my mornings are chaotic in the household but um i hear you on just needing to kind of turn it off i've also heard of people uh going to cafes where they know there's no wi-fi that's you're gonna get work done. Um and I actually heard in Japan there's a hotel that charges extra for a room that doesn't have Wi-Fi access.
1: <laughs> they charge extra. That's great. <laughs> well you know I think it's something like eighty percent twenty percent eighty percent people are morning people and twenty percent are are nocturnal or night people and it sounds like that's yeah even. it can shift I think you know as your as your life circumstances change. But, you know, as long as you know yourself, then you know when to plan to do the things that yeah. require a lot of brain power.
0: Yeah, so far I've trained my children to sleep in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we'll see when school starts. Um, I am curious now about sort of your your expanded network because you have had um, more than one amazing career. You have met, like you said, and interviewed just tens of thousands of fascinating people. You go to conferences, you speak. Are you doing anything to... Uh, thoughtfully, purposely sustained connections with not your closest people, but like that second and third sort of level out, Um, the people that you meet at a conference, but you don't really have a reason to work with them, but you're like, they're good people. Like, how do you stay engaged with that part of your network or your community?
1: Yeah. Well, it gets more challenging as your community broadens. So, you know, it's it's a nice challenge to have, but it's still a challenge. And I think... uh, you know, there's a lot of different things that I do. I mean, I'm still involved in business development in my firm. So I what I try to do, actually, I have a launched a podcast. So I'm out inter- doing interviews as I have for my books. So that's a great way to meet the kinds of people that I want to be meeting. But how to stay in touch, I think I found that what is most effective, especially for the broadest network, is uh, publishing thought leadership. So Part of the reason that we do research is because we can write articles and white papers and publish and be interviewed. And it's not just me in my business anymore, but I have several people who uh, contribute to our thought leadership. And what I think is important about that is that uh, when you're creating value for somebody else, then they're going to be interested in you. You know, they're going to they're going to be interested in what you're doing, what your point of view is. You develop whether or not you know they're reading it, a peer-to-peer relationship with somebody because you're talking about things that matter to them. Yeah. So it all depends on where you are in your business and your life. But even if you're working for a company, you, you know, let's say you haven't, either you're not an entrepreneur yet, thinking about it someday, or you just want to move up in your industry, developing thought leadership is easier than it's ever been. I think LinkedIn is a phenomenal platform for publishing mm-hmm. and anybody can publish articles on LinkedIn. And I know that's one of the places I often go to look to see uh, what interests me about somebody.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And stay stay tuned in to what's going on in their life. That's great. And also when you reach out to them, you can personalize it, have some context. It's not like you haven't talked to them forever because they've seen you reading their stuff, commenting on their stuff. Um, when you're traveling, do you like make a habit of, of, you know, either going to see people one-on-one or organizing dinners or do, do you like, kind of take the geography, um, advantage as it were?
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, we could all do more of that, but a good example would be actually in just a few weeks, I'm hosting a client dinner at a wine cellar in New York. Uh, and, uh, I'm inviting people who aren't necessarily clients. Mm -hmm. A couple of them are, some of them aren't. And my, uh, I call them Jeffersonian style dinners because I don't know if you're familiar with that format, but really it's all about, uh, uh, conversation. So we don't split up. We actually have a full conversation at the table with an interesting topic, which in my case is usually, what are some of the business trends you're noticing? Mm. Um, how is that uh, playing out in, in your part of the business? Uh, and and what ends up happening is people really quickly get to know one another and they really appreciate it when you're a convener of others. Yes. And while I'm there, I'm also going to have lunch with somebody uh, at one of the networks who, uh, and, and he was a former colleague of mine in television, but he also helped a young uh, a woman who I've been mentoring to get an internship at that network. So I'm taking him out to lunch to thank him. So, you know, I think there's just always, always opportunities to, yeah. to connect with people, whether or not the specific purpose of it is uh, to do business with them that day.
0: Well, and what I, I want to sort of underscore about this is uh, just taking that last point that this is a colleague that you haven't worked with in quite a while. You've had a business for almost 20 years, um, but you were friendly with them way back when you've stayed in touch in some way and in such a way that you knew you could reach out to this person as former colleague to help your current um, mentee, right? And it wasn't like, a, who are you? I haven't talked to you in 25 years, right? So that's, you never know. Uh, where those connections might go. But I always think if you liked somebody at your you know, first or second career, <laughs> um, why not continue that in some way? And people switch careers all the time and you may end up back in the same field again or not. Um, but just having that uh, that sort of mindset. And then these client dinners sound like a wonderful way to both um, have a place for your, your clients, but also to bring in interesting people. Those are the people that you maybe don't necessarily have business with, but they like being in the mix. And then that's where the magic sometimes comes, right? And convening. I just got to say, that's the piece that I, that's so wonderful. I think a lot about the host role. Um, a, a big through line for my work is inclusion and how do you create a welcoming space? And so the way I even think about networking is is it's about relationship building, but it's also about how to be a host and how to train the regulars who have been attending events for a long time uh, or a group for a long time, how to, how to have them think of themselves as that host. Um, there's such power in that role, as you said, to convene people. They're always so grateful for the experience. And, and, and Dory Clark, whose name comes up probably every other episode, <laughs> um, I love Dory, And she's a great example because when she moved from Boston to New York, um, she, she was doing dinners every other week. And that's how she established an amazing network. And she's an introvert. So that was a a great way for her to manage her energy, which is the other thing you mentioned earlier, is how do you thoughtfully sort of do all the things without burning yourself out? And that's where people get a little bit overwhelmed. Have you found like you have a sort of a, a sense of now at this point in your career, it's just maintaining that? Like, are you trying anything new in this area of sort of building connections and relationships? Are you like out on the limb with a new... I don't know, a new idea, a new concept?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there, I'm always looking for, for ways to meet people. And one of the things I've found is it's great to reconnect with old networks, like mm. you suggested. So, uh, and, you know, I think if you're, if you are an introvert and I'm not, I'm not a, you, you might think I'm an extrovert because of, you know, what I've done in my career, but I'm actually not. I, I, I get more uh, energy from coming home and reading a book. But I'm a, I've adapted. Then I think that's what most people do. So I'm not a raging introvert either. But uh, you know, I don't need people to to fuel me, right? So uh, so I have to uh, like everybody else. You know, I have to think about extending myself. And you know, sometimes I'd rather go home and get into my pajamas than go to an event. But I've just found once I'm there, I'm always happy that I went. So. Uh, for example even though some of uh, we run open enrollment programs for uh, called speak like a CEO and executive presence mastery and I always go to the cocktail party and we design the cocktail party so that people from both of our programs can meet one another and talk to each other and uh, of course that uh-huh. also serves a purpose of their talking up our firm right appearances the that they're having but I always go to those even though there are other folks from my organization who are actually teaching the course um, When I get invited to, you know, there are some people who really, really love to put stuff together. So I remember a year ago, I was invited to a reunion for another, uh, you know, former television group of mine. And it was in New York. So it took a little effort, but I went down because it was just so cool. Now, I was nervous walking in the door because they were, like you said, some of those people I hadn't seen in more than 20 years. <laughs> and I share that just because we all feel that way when we're walking into a room and we're really not sure what's going to happen. Uh, but, you know, you got to remember everybody else feels the same way. And I love the concept of, you know, hosting even when you're not the host, which is, I think, what you were alluding to, Robbie. You know, it can really take the difficulty out of networking. If you find one person who, and think of a reason why you could Introduce them to somebody else. Uh, then um, it gives you a purpose. You're, you know, you you come across as a gracious connector. <laughs> and, you know, if you can find something nice and relevant to say about each of those people, they really appreciate it, and they yeah. never forget that you made that introduction.
0: Yeah, that's true. The, everyone has that feeling of I don't know where to be in the room, and if you're the one who helps them find their place, they will remember that. And and I will also go. Uh, a little further and say that they will then pay it forward because they were so warmly received, they will then do the same. And that's how you sort of generate these amazing spaces. Um, my next book is about the importance of diversifying our professional networks and examples of how people have done that. I've interviewed some really interesting people who have, you know, creative dinner parties or escape rooms or all kinds of things that they do. Um, and it's a very leading question, but what is in your mind the importance of having such a diverse network? Like you clearly have not just not just met a lot of people, but you've developed connections that go beyond your immediate day to day business needs. So, why what's the what's the reasoning for you about maintaining those kinds of and diversity in the broadest? It sounds like in the broadest strokes possible for you.
1: Well, you know, for me, the 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 real motivator, especially as I get older, is it's personally rewarding to know a lot of different kind of people who are doing cool things, (laughs) and uh, right, I mean, you learn so much. Uh, You know, I'm I'm right now. I'm actually on Cape Cod. Um, We have a second home here, and I've met some really really interesting people that I never would have met. But just going to exercise class, I met an artist and, you know, a bunch of other folks who I never would have met um, had I not. And, you know, when you walk in the room, you know, everybody's tendency is just to stand there, even at exercise class, right? And go, "Mm -hmm, I'm just here to exercise. But when you strike up a conversation, you never know who you're going to meet. And so it just, it makes your life richer, I think. Uh, Now, I think that you can take that to an extreme. I think you have to know when, you know, a lot of people now put their headsets on when they get on the airplane and who can blame them because, you know, you can get stuck in a three hour conversation that isn't very rewarding. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't, I'm not a carte blanche, like everywhere you go, meet everybody and stri- but at the same time, I, you know, I think you just extend yourself a little bit. You never know who you're going to meet and it's going to enrich your life.
0: It also seems like the context is important because you, if you have a shared experience, um, even, even exercise classes, a shared experience more so than being on a plane. Um, you, you're there and you're going to keep running to each other. There's also the idea that you might go back and see each other weekly, weekly. Why not say hello? Um, you know, cause you don't know what other possibilities sort of come from that. Um, and yes, we all live in fear of the three hour conversation on the plane. It doesn't do well. <laughs> even I do. And I am an outgoing extrovert to the extreme, <laughs> And that would be like, uh, yeah, I don't really, um, I actually remember uh, there was a time I was traveling by myself, um, and I had just—I uh, had learned to knit when I was a teenager, and I just picked it up again in my like you know mid mid late thirties, and I was knitting preemie hats um, because that was what my um, my great aunt had shown me how to do, and I couldn't remember how to cast on, just lost it, and I walked around the airport with the needles sort of out in front of me with a little like puppy dog <laughs> kind of look on my face. And someone was like, are you, are you trying to, do you need help? And I was like, yeah. And so three women came over from three different like seats and came and sat with me and we had an amazing conversation about knitting. (laughs) And I just thought I should carry these more often. (laughs) Like (laughs) what a cool way to start a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So
1: you know what you were vulnerable though. Yeah. I, I think that that's a really important part of, um, meeting people is dropping our guard enough to be open to it. So you seem approachable.
0: That's brilliant. That's a good takeaway there too, to think about what we can do to be a little more vulnerable in a way that lets people kind of connect with us as opposed to the facade that we are always projecting and, and, and buying into ourselves. Um, this has been amazing. My final question for you is, um, well, it's, it's basically like, uh, it's like your next year question. So if we're sitting together a year from now and we're toasting all of your achievements, I want to know what we're going to be celebrating.
1: Oh boy. Well, I feel I have so much to celebrate already in my life. And, you know, we all have challenges of course, but I feel so fortunate. Uh, I have a, I have a wonderful family, uh, a grown daughter, uh, who actually works with me and, uh, you know, a fantastic business, wonderful colleagues, and so many great friends. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to even think about asking for more. But I think what I what I hope, what I really hope, is that a year from now, I will have made even other significant contributions that have helped other people achieve their
0: dreams. Oh, I love this. I love this. I love the, the uh, counting your blessings and your abundance that you currently have and wanting to just keep paying even more forward. Um, Suzanne, where can people find you and follow your work?
1: Oh, thank you. Well, uh, let's see. We talked about LinkedIn. So you'll find me, Suzanne Bates, uh, on LinkedIn. And if you're a Twitter person, I'm CEO Coach Bates. And then our website is bates Communications with an S.com. So baits-communications.com.
0: And I will have all those links in the show notes. And you earlier, you mentioned you're working on a podcast. Is that something that people can tune into?
1: Yes, they can. It's called Thoughts for Tuesday. And we're on most of the platforms now. So you should be able to find us there. It's very exciting. I'm really enjoying uh, sitting down and doing these long interviews, just like you did today. You really get to know people and uh, it's a treat.
0: Awesome. Well, I hope everyone tunes into Thoughts for Tuesday, wherever podcasts are found these days. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Robbie. And best wishes to you and everybody in your audience as well.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Suzanne. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 104. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode with Suzanne, please share with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on iTunes. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. And I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week.